I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic Gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. On this episode of Newt's World, in his new book, The Case for Nukes, How We Can Beat Global Warming and Create a Free, Open, and Magnificent Future, Dr. Robert Zubrin makes a very strong case that opposing nuclear energy and driving up its cost has turned out to be the wrong choice given the current importance of reducing carbon emissions globally. As he very clearly explains, we already have the technology to provide human civilization with unlimited and clean energy. Here to discuss his new book, I'm really pleased to welcome back my guest and good friend, Robert Zubrin. He's the president of Pioneer Astronautics, an aerospace research and development company in Colorado, the founder and president of the Mars Society, and a former staff engineer at Lockheed Martin Astronautics. Robert, welcome back, and thank you for joining me on Newt's World. And I want to remind our listeners, this is the second time you've joined me. We last spoke in June 2021 about why SpaceX's Starship will change everything. So it's usual you're right at the cutting edge. Why don't you start? Because you're so broadly informed and so broadly intelligent. How did you get here? What was your track and your growth personally that gets you to where you are today? Well, my doctorate actually is in nuclear engineering, and I worked in the nuclear field before I worked in aerospace. And I was originally hired by then Martin Marietta, which is now Lockheed Martin, to do some nuclear space propulsion stuff for them. And then when that contract ended, I moved on to other areas of aerospace, which is how I have spent most of my career in diverse areas of aerospace. But me and nuclear power go way back. And in the 80s, when I was in graduate school, I'd have debates with the Sierra Club, which was trying to stop the building of nuclear power plants in Washington State, where they had a major nuclear power industry. And, you know, here's the Sierra Club. They're always going on about how 
we have to stop pollution and the smoke and we're going to run out of fuel. And I would say, well, nuclear power has no smoke and you will never run out. And they'd say, we hate that. And then it would mystify me. And then I finally realized something, which is why did they hate nuclear power more than the fossil fuels, given the oil slicks that could kill all the coastal wildlife and everything? They hate nuclear power more than that. Why? And it is because it would solve a problem they need to have. Okay. And so then I actually then went researching it and I looked into the past. And now in the 60s, nuclear power wasn't really that big a factor. I mean, we started to have some plants, but it was mostly something for the future. And Half of them were for it, though mostly as a bit of a straw horse. So we don't need this coal plant. We don't need an oil plant because we're going to have nuclear power someday. But then when nuclear power really started coming on in the early 70s, and in the early 70s, we were getting orders for a major new nuclear power plant every two weeks. We were getting twice a month order for a nuclear power. That's how fast it was coming on. And then they switched. And in their statement, which finally came out in 1974, in which they came out against nuclear power, the Sierra Club said, we must oppose nuclear power because it would encourage unnecessary economic growth. That was the thing. And then the issue of the waste, they said, we're going to use the waste issue as a way to stop nuclear power. Because if we can stop the storage of civilian nuclear waste, we'll create an insolvable problem for the industry. So they then went and they convinced Jimmy Carter to ban the planned sub-seabed disposal of nuclear waste, which was the easiest way to do it. And then he went and said, oh, we're going to put it all under a mountain in Nevada and create this multi-billion dollar project. But then they opposed even that. And here are these people who claim that they're concerned about public safety from radioactive waste, saying we should keep it in the suburbs of major cities at the nuclear power plants themselves, rather than putting it under a mountain in the desert in Nevada. So it's been a dodge. And then they prevailed on the Carter administration to create this NRC, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. And along with it, an extremely convoluted regulatory structure. And in the book, I have a diagram showing the flowchart of what you have to go through to get a nuclear power plant approved. And it looks like a map of the New York subway system. And each of those subway stops include an entire subway stop in themselves, a subway map. And so, for instance, importantly, the, one of those stops is the Environmental Protection Agency. And they will not only demand proof that this thing isn't going to pollute, but they will demand proof that the nuclear power plant is necessary and the utility was correct in building it instead of a coal plant, a gas plant, or no plant. And imagine if you had some land and you want to build a log cabin on it and you have to go to the authorities to get a permit and you show them the plans and that it's a safe house and they say, but prove to us that this shouldn't be a chalet or an A-frame or a Cape Cod or a candy store or a zoo. And you have to prove that. And then somehow you convince the mayor that you're right, but now interveners can come in and contest his decision. And now you have to go to court. And then if you win in court, they appeal the court. So for instance, yesterday in your state of Georgia, they just commissioned a nuclear power plant, big one. And it's great. It finally came online. It took 14 years to build. 
The first civilian nuclear power plant we had in this country, Shippen Port in Pennsylvania, took three years. So the time it has taken to build a plant has quintupled. With experience, the time should have gone down. But with the regulatory burden, the time has quintupled. And as I show in the data in the book, the cost of a nuclear power plant has gone up as the time squared. Because not only do you have more time that you're spending paying the workers to sit around doing nothing instead of building things, but there's a lot more people get into the game. And like lawyers, you got to pay them a lot more than plumbers. So it just gets exponential. And this is what has hamstrung nuclear power in the United States. When you write the case for nukes, what is the net advantage of nukes over alternative sources of energy? Well, first of all, well, the advantage over the so-called renewables, which should really should be called the unreliables, is that it's reliable and available in quantity. You cannot power an industrial society with intermittent power. And I mean, look, I love wind power. It enabled the growth of civilization by powering sailing ships that establish global trade networks. So it's a fantastic source of energy for off-grid power at small scale. And solar energy... Well, it's also nice for off-grid power in space. But even in 19th century America, we had to get beyond sail. It's why America invented the steamboat and the high-pressure steam engine that then made railroads possible. Already in the early 19th century, wind was proving inadequate. And solar biomass, which is solar energy in another form, it's inadequate. So we went to fossil fuels. And fossil fuels have done an enormous amount for human civilization by making reliable energy available at scale and actually saving nature. You know who saved the whales was Rockefeller because the whales were being hunted to extinction for whale oil and by replacing it with petroleum, boom, that industry wasn't quite wiped out, but it was reduced a hundredfold in size and thus there are still whales because the fossil fuels have less impact on nature than whale hunting or cutting down forests and killing all the animals in a forest to cut it down. Well, nuclear power has much less involvement with nature still. Nuclear power taps a resource which natural systems do not address in any way whatsoever. And so if you want to be a friend of nature, you want to use stuff that nature doesn't use. To preserve the natural, we need to create the artificial. So with nuclear power, one of the arguments I hear is that there's a whole new generation of smaller, dramatically safer, and less expensive nuclear power plants. I mean, is that part of the future, or do you think very, very large centralized plants will remain the dominant form? That's part of the future. And I give the Biden administration a limited amount of credit for continuing a policy that had been begun by the Trump administration to allocate a certain amount of money that's going to entrepreneurial companies to develop new types of nuclear power plants. And it's like 10 million here, 10 million there. It's not gigantic money, but it's something and they're doing it and that's fine. But the problem with this argument is that it's being used as a dodge of saying, well, we're for nuclear power when we have a new type of nuclear power. We're not for the kind of nuclear power that we actually have now. Now, here's the thing. It is true that the nuclear power plants we have now are really copies, not changed very much, from the pressurized water reactor that was introduced by Rickover in the 1950s. And 
there's two reasons for that. One is it was a solid design. It's a very good design. It's inherently safe. You cannot have a runaway fission reactor in a pressurized water reactor because the water is both the coolant and is necessary to sustain the nuclear fission chain reaction itself. And so if the coolant goes away, the reaction goes away. And this is what Rick oversaw, and it was true then, and it's true now. And as a result, there have been over a thousand pressurized water reactors on land or sea over the past 60 years, and not a single person has ever been harmed by a radiological release from any of them. That said, there could be improvements. We could go to breeder reactors, for example, which get over 90% of the energy out of the uranium instead of the 1% that the pressurized water reactors get. We could go with thorium reactors, which use a cheaper fuel. We could go with the small modular reactors, which are more susceptible to mass production. And so it's great that we got some startup companies, actually quite a few, that are pursuing some of these things. But the problem I see here is that if the regulatory structure remains hostile, it's even going to be harder to get a new type of nuclear power licensed than the traditional ones. Because the traditional ones, at least the regulators are fully familiar with them. With the new ones, they're going to say, well, we don't know about this. You're cooling this breeder reactor with liquid metal. Can't sodium catch on fire? It can't. Yeah. Now, there are answers to that argument. But believe me, they're going to come up with a lot more what ifs on new reactors than they do with the old reactors. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. And recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rock the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry. Back to Iguodala. Up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
It seemed to me from a popular culture standpoint that there are three things you have to be able to answer. The first, which I thought had an impact on the whole psychology of nuclear power, was the movie The China Syndrome. And the whole idea that it could go so dramatically critical that it would sort of burn through the earth. It's total nonsense, but it was a very powerful movie. To what extent do you think that's no longer relevant? Well, the argument is still relevant. The technical consideration is not relevant or not relevant to the extent that was represented. It is true that a pressurized water reactor, while it cannot have a runaway fission reaction, if the coolant goes away, the reaction stops, but there's still heat being released in the fuel. If the reactor has been running for some time, it's got radioactive waste in the fuel, and this is releasing heat. And if you turn a reactor off, it within milliseconds will go from 100% power to 7% power. And that 7% is the decay heat from the radionuclides. And that will decay down further within hours to like 1%. But in the meantime, if you're not cooling the reactor, that can actually melt the fuel. And what the anti-nuke said was, well, it's not being cooled. It's going to melt the fuel. And then it's going to melt its way through the 8-inch thick steel pressure vessel containing the fuel. And then it will melt its way through the 8-foot thick concrete containment building containing the whole reactor system. And then it will melt its way through the earth to the center of the earth and then sort of counter physics. It would then go anti-gravity up the other side of the earth and all the way to China where it would emerge into someone's rice paddy. So this was called the China Syndrome. And yes, there was a movie starring Jane Fonda, which featured exactly such an accident. And coincidentally, and I do believe this was a coincidence, although conspiracy theorists argue otherwise, this movie was released the very same month that exactly such an accident happened at Three Mile Island, Pennsylvania. Now, except that what happened to Three Mile Island, there was operator error and the coolant was drained out of the reactor. And yeah, the reaction stopped, but they had a meltdown. But instead of it melting all the way to China, it melted about one inch into the eight inch thick steel pressure vessel and then it stopped. It didn't make it through the pressure vessel, let alone the containment building, let alone the earth. And there was a very small amount of radioiodine had to be vented, enough to give the people in the vicinity the same radiation dose that they would have gotten had they gone and spent the weekend in Colorado, where you have higher levels of background radiation than you do in Pennsylvania. And there are no higher cancer levels in Colorado than Pennsylvania, in fact, less. Three Mile Island was the only mega disaster in human history in which not a single person was hurt. Yeah, my father at one time was a security officer at Three Mile Island. My grandmother lived in Royalton, which you could physically see Three Mile Island from where her house was. The gap between the hysteria and the reality was amazing. We actually did a movie called We Have the Power, Glist and I did, and we went up and filmed on Three Mile Island because the other reactor is still operating. It's still producing power. But, you know, as a result of the hysteria, they shut that reactor down for a number of years, the second reactor, which was unhurt. And as a result, a lot of coal had to be burnt, which coal does cause a certain amount of pollution, especially if we're talking 1980s technology. So there were probably several thousand cancer deaths caused as a result of the NRC shutting down the second Three Mile Island plant. Now, the much bigger and more spectacular problem was Chernobyl. How do you explain Chernobyl in the context of your commitment to nuclear power? Chernobyl, first of all, was not a pressurized water reactor. Chernobyl was a graphite-moderated reactor. Pressurized water reactor, if it gets too hot, 
the water boils too furiously, and now there's holes in the water, and it can't slow down the neutrons, which is needed to sustain the reaction. So it shuts down. Graphite doesn't boil. Now, you can actually design a graphite reactor to have its reactivity be reduced if it gets too hot, but it's much harder than with water. And in fact, that was not the case with this Soviet reactor. This Soviet reactor had what's called a positive coefficient of reactivity. The hotter it get, the faster the reaction would go. And it was unstable. So this was a design that absolutely never could have gotten licensed in any civilized country. And furthermore, they didn't even have a containment building around the reactor. So what happened was they did this goofy experiment which they pulled the rods and they sent the reactivity up and then it had a runaway. So it actually did have a runaway chain reaction. Now, it was not a bomb because a bomb, not only do you have to have a runaway chain reaction, the chain reaction has to run away so fast that it releases the energy in the uranium before the thing can disassemble and shut down the reaction. Now, Chernobyl was not a bomb. It was a reactor. So it disassembled with only a small amount of the nuclear yield being released. But that yield was enough to blow the building apart. And now you've got this reactor, which has been blown open, and it's made of red-hot graphite, which can now catch fire because it's exposed to the atmosphere. So that reactor was not only unstable, it was flammable. And if they'd even had a containment building around Chernobyl, not much would have happened. They would have lost the reactor, but there would have been no significant release to the environment. Now, what happened at Chernobyl, then the entire radio inventory of the plant then goes up into the fire and is dispersed to the environment. And it released an amount of fallout comparable to the Hiroshima bomb. Now that said, if you want to know, no people in Hiroshima were killed by fallout. They were all killed by the blast or the radio flash of the bomb itself. The fallout itself didn't kill anybody. And the Chernobyl fallout was about equivalent. Now, there's a theory called the linear threshold theory that regulators use. And it was actually invented by a very odd duck named Herman Muller, who was a communist. And when I say he was a communist, I don't just mean he was a professor who liked to go to coffee shops and listen to communist folk songs. I mean, he knew Stalin. And this guy came up with this theory called linear no threshold, which is that the danger from a radio dose is in proportion to the dose. So if a thousand rems of radiation will kill you, then 10 rems has a 1% chance of killing you, and one rem has a tenth of a percent chance of killing you, so that if a thousand people each get one rem, one person's going to die. Now, this is a false theory. It's like saying if you drink a thousand glasses of wine in one night, then if you drink one glass of wine, there's a 1% chance it's going to kill you. Or if a hundred people each drink one glass of wine, one person's going to die which is simply false. It's just not how things work. And yet this is how the regulators do it. Now, if you take this theory in which you take lots of small doses, too small to be harmful to anyone, and you say they add up, then you get a number that 4,000 people would have died from Chernobyl. There's no proof that this happened, but this is a theoretical number that comes from this theory. But in fact, 4,000 people die from pollution from fossil fuels every day in China. You'd have to have a Chernobyl every day to have a body count 
comparable to what is caused by the coal-fired power plants in China that have no pollution control systems or anything of the sort. Did the Russians learn from all that and did they change their designs? Not really, no. I mean, there was a level of incompetence associated with Chernobyl that boggles the mind. For example, the Soviet Union had an extensive civil defense program. They were prepared to fight a nuclear war. And so they had large supplies of iodine that was in shelters all over the place so that if there was fallout, they could give these pills to everybody. They didn't distribute them. They were actually prepared to deal with nuclear fallout. So the civil defense bureaucracy didn't interact with the nuclear power bureaucracy. Right. Or maybe the people in Moscow thought if we distributed this, it would be admitting that something had gone wrong. I think that's probably what happened because these kinds of people never want to admit Of all the years we've had nuclear plants all over the planet, those are really the only two occasions that stand out. Well, there's one more, of course, which is Fukushima. Now, Fukushima, those were pressurized water reactors. Now, the entire city of Fukushima was destroyed by a tidal wave and earthquake. 28,000 people were killed by crashing buildings, by drowning, and related causes. Not Three of the nuclear power plants were destroyed, but there was no radiological release of consequence. Not a single person outside the plant gate was exposed to a radiological dose of any significance. So here you have a natural disaster of enormous magnitude in which the entire city is destroyed, including three nuclear power plants, but there's no radiological release. So if anything could prove the safety of nuclear power, it's actually Fukushima. That's wild. The opposite, of course, of the press coverage. So from your perspective, how many nuclear plants would the United States have to build to be able to generate all of its electricity in a clean way? Let's see. We got around 100. If we built another 300, we would be 75, 80% nuclear, and then we'll be 10% hydroelectric, and you'll probably want to have some fossil fuel plants here or there in particular places where that's advantageous, for instance, where you have a great deal of natural gas coming off as a byproduct of oil production and so forth. And in fact, there's a country that has done that. It's France. France is 75% nuclear, 10% hydroelectric, and 15% fossil. And as a result, and this is the work of Charles de Gaulle, wanted France to be great, you know, and he had to take some doing after World War II to do that. And he put together a labor industry alliance, included both the industrialists and the trade unions, including the trade unions led by the Communist Party, which were a lot of them. And they said, look, we got to have economic growth. You want jobs? You want all this? Well, this is how we're going to do it. We're going to make France grand. And, and they're 75% nuclear. And in consequence of this, today, France generates one-fifth the carbon per unit electricity as Germany which is controlled by greens with major green power and the other parties all include substantial green factors, so much so they went and they shut down their nuclear power plants. The green Germany produces five times as much carbon emissions as nuclear France. And it's even worse than that because a lot of the carbon that they use 
is from burning down forests. That you know, the Germans have this thing about forests. They're in love with their forests. It's wonderful that they're making electricity from forests. They're making electricity from forests by killing trees and the animals that live in the trees. So there's nothing more harmful to nature than using natural power, and yet that's where they are. And of course. As a result of shutting down their nuclear power plants, they also gave a big chunk of change to Russia to expand its military and develop thermonuclear weapons and hypersonic weapons and all of that. I'm Katia Adler, host of the Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you look worldwide... Isn't it fair to say that there's actually a tremendous renaissance in building nuclear plants? Yeah, there is. And you know who's leading it? Take a wild guess. I would guess the Chinese. You have guessed correctly. There's currently 450 active commercial nuclear power plants in the world. The Chinese plan to build 450 more domestically by the year 2050. And they plan to build hundreds of them to meet the needs of new cities that are forming in Africa and elsewhere around the world. And it's really incredible that here's the United States, which invented nuclear power. We did the first fission reaction. We did the first fission bombs. We did the first nuclear submarine. We did the first commercial nuclear power plants. And yet we can't compete because we are tying our shoelaces together. And in fact, the French 
Well, Macron was in the process of shutting their nuclear power industry down when they got a wake-up call from this situation with Russia, and he did a 180, and that's fortunate. But it's basically the French and the South Koreans who are the only serious free world competition to the Chinese and the Russians in exporting nuclear power plants to the developing sector. But you've looked forward, you see a worldwide dramatic expansion of nuclear power as a source of energy. Yeah, I do. Look, the primary problem in the world today is poverty. We have poverty in America, but the average income of Americans is $50,000 a year. The average income of a citizen of planet Earth is $10,000 a year. And half of the population of the Earth is below average, that they make less than $10,000. So you can imagine how much poverty there is in the world and what that does in terms of malnutrition and lack of opportunity and the fact that children have to go to work and they can't get educated and this tremendous loss in public health and weak populations become seedbeds for epidemics. And it's not just their problem, it's our problem. So this is the task of the 21st century. We're going to have to increase global energy consumption at least five times just to get the average to the current American level, which, as you know, still leaves some people poor. You can't do that with fossil fuels. Now, here's the thing. Global warming is real, although it is not as alarming as it is represented to be. We've had a one degree centigrade increase in global temperatures since 1870. And this has changed some things. You may know, since you're from Georgia, that in Georgia, during the Civil War, Confederate troops entertained themselves in the winter with massive snowball fights. Try doing that on army bases in Georgia now. So, yes, the world's gotten warmer, but this hasn't been a catastrophe. The amount of warming that has occurred is equivalent to somebody in New York City moving to central New Jersey. In reality, not only did people in New York City move to New Jersey, a lot of them moved to Florida. So people are not suffering from the amount of warming that has occurred. Now, the warming has been modest and for the most part beneficial. Actually, the strongest evidence for global warming is the fact that the American growing season has expanded by three weeks since the beginning of the 20th century. So that's been beneficial. The climate people never talk about that because it's a clear benefit. However, there is an issue, which is the carbon emissions themselves. That is, while a one degree temperature rise is really not that much, the carbon content of the atmosphere, the carbon dioxide content of the atmosphere has gone up from 280 parts per million in the 1800s to 420 today. That's an increase of 50%. That's enough to matter. Now, on land, that has been beneficial. It has actually increased the rate of plant growth on land. We have photographs taken from orbit by NASA which show that the rate of plant growth, and here I'm not just talking about farm plants which have fertilizer and we're helping them. I'm talking about wild plants, forests. The rate of plant growth on Earth has accelerated by 15% since 1985 on land. However, in the ocean, it's not the same. Because in the ocean, the limiting factor on plant growth with phytoplankton, microscopic algaes and so forth, is not the availability of CO2. It's the availability of certain trace elements, iron, sulfur, nitrates, that only are available in the ocean in river estuaries and upwelling areas and certain other special places like that. That's why 90% of the life in the ocean is generated in 10% of the ocean. The rest of it is comparatively barren. And so when CO2 goes there, it does not get taken up by plants. And instead, it carbonates the water. And this could affect the ability of marine organisms to make shells and stuff like this. So 
while we cannot go to net zero by the year 2050, that's not happening, we do need to stop ourselves from going to five times our current carbon emissions in the 21st century. And by the way, the program of the climatists of trying to stop carbon emissions, there have been few programs in the world that have been less successful. That is, since 1990, when they raised the alarm over carbon emissions, global carbon emissions have doubled, just as they did between 1960 and 1990, and between 1930 and 1960, and 1900 and 1930. And the reason for this is that energy is fundamental to well-being, and people don't like being poor. So to the extent that human beings have had any say in the matter, and they have a lot of say in the matter, even in totalitarian countries, the leaders want to keep their people satisfied, and so they do want to advance living standards so long as they stay in power. This is what happens. So unless we can come on board with a source of energy that cannot just replace the amount of power we're currently generating by fossil fuels, but bring on board five times that much power without creating a massive increase in CO2 in the atmosphere, this is going to have a serious effect. So first of all, I don't think the fuel exists to support a world economy five times the current size based on fossil fuels. Or in any case, if it did, it would be at a very high price that would benefit mostly tyrannical regimes. But in order to create that world, we have to unleash this new form of energy. Well, here's the other factor here, which is who creates the energy? One problem with fossil fuels is that they represent a very large source of wealth that a lot of it is in the hands of people who did not create that. They have it by right of possession. And that gives power to those who have possession, to those who take it as opposed to those who make it. For instance, in 2008, OPEC decided to constrict the world oil supply, and this sent the price of oil to $150 a barrel. It caused a global economic crash. And right now, we're seeing OPEC constricting the world oil supply. Here's Russian oil, we're trying to cut it off, and they say, well, that's great. We'll constrict our oil too a little bit, as opposed to reaping a benefit of producing more oil to say, okay, you're giving us a bit more of the market, that's great. No, they say, oh no, okay, you wanna play that? Let's talk about $150 oil. And this hurts us, and it hurts all sorts of people who use a lot of energy, which include the most creative parts of the world. And whereas, see, nuclear power, is a power that goes to those who are creative, which is to say those that are free. Freedom unleashes creativity, and creativity can create, has the power to create resources that weren't there before. So it was only the United States that had the power to invent nuclear power in the first place. Well, the British helped us do it too. That's who did it. And we're talking about an enormous energy resource. Nuclear power plants today, we get the uranium from uranium ore, and it's a few percent uranium, but there's uranium everywhere. An ordinary block of granite that you see buildings made of or mountains made of, okay, is got two parts per million uranium and eight parts per million thorium in it. And that means that a pound of uranium contains as much energy as a hundred pounds of oil. So if you look at a mountain of granite, you're looking at a mountain of energy. Moses was able to get water out of a rock. We can get energy out of rocks. And we can also get energy out of water because once we develop fusion power, a gallon of water has as much energy as 350 gallons of gasoline. So 
At that point, the fact that the Saudis happened to be sitting on top of a bunch of oil that they did nothing to create does them no good at all. So it's a better world if power goes to the creative because the creative are the free. It's fascinating to listen to you and you've thought about this so long. I want to thank you for joining me in Newt's World and I want to encourage our listeners to get your new book, The Case for Nukes, How We Can Beat Global Warming and Create a Free, Open and Magnificent Future, which I think is one of the best books I've read on how to harness the promise of nuclear energy. It's a must read for anyone involved in trying to solve our energy challenges and has much more common sense than most of what people are going to be dealing with. So, Robert, thank you very much for joining me. Well, thank you, Newt. It's always a pleasure. Thank you to my guest, Dr. Robert Zubrin. You can get a link to order his new book, The Case for Nukes, on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newtsworld is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howell, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Pendley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newtsworld, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. 
Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.